You are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. It is possible. There are no flags on the field. It's a miracle. Live from the center of the basketball universe, it's the 252. This is Chris Garretts with Chris Moore and Sam Mulberry. And nameless guest who will arrive in the second segment, but is going to so listen. You have to stick to around for that, right? Why is this the center of the basketball universe? I defy you to name another uh, major metropolitan area whose major college and pro teams have won so convincingly in the last like 48 hours. Uh, go for women's basketball defeated Michigan State, which I know is not much, but last night, Gophers men took down Purdue from there we some go. state called Indiana, I think. And the Timberwolves. <laughs> that shade will make more sense in a second. <laughs> managed to crush uh, OKC in Paul George's return. So there we go. At least for the. I know we're kind of just like mediocre Big Ten, not even mediocre NBA, but for today, I'm going to claim it because we're going to talk for, a lot. You mean of, like for one shining moment? I can't even sing that song. We'll get to that later because we're going to talk a lot of college hoops in our second segment. So this is kind of a basketball themed episode. Uh, but I want to start with baseball, you guys, as you might yep. have heard. Uh, one Bryce Harper finally signed his deal with the Philadelphia Phillies, as expected. 13 years for $330 million. I'm trying to make that sound as big as I can. It's I, I understand the biggest pro sports athlete individual contract in history. Is that – have we – Confirm that? Yes. Yeah. I, mean, I was. I was looking. You... I was looking at. I mean, if you take out boxing, then yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But of like the major team sports, Correct. this is Correct. the single biggest one. And but what it, what interested me looking at it yeah. though was that it's not that much bigger than number two. Oh. What's number two? Number in 2014, Giancarlo Stanton signed a 13 year, 325 million dollar contract. So like I so don't adjusting for inflation. Yeah, like yeah. like I I I was so because I had heard so much about this Harper deal, and so mm-hmm. I was like, well, what is what did what record did he beat? He makes about three hundred eighty eighty four thousand dollars more per year than Stanton does. Okay, now I assume at least some listeners at this point are saying, whatever three hundred thirty million dollars for thirteen <laughs> years of playing right field. Right. Um, but I want to talk about these numbers because I, I get that as a sort of gut response, right? That these are unfathomable, ridiculous, absurd numbers. Right. This is what's wrong with sports ball, right? Um, and yet, I think I want us to take a different view of this, which is let's think about the sheer size of sports as an industry, right? Mm-hmm. So at least as far as my very limited research could find, sports in North America is valued at $70 billion for, again, I think this is not just the major team sports, but includes auto racing and boxing and, and MMA and all the rest. Mm-hmm. Um, now, so $330 million over 13 years versus $74 billion. Uh, but also, like, consider how small that is compared to some other industries in America. Uh, so real estate, finance, insurance, and healthcare alone are each valued at well over a trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. Right? And I don't think we spent yeah. a lot of time talking about, like, what CEOs are paid in right. those industries. Right, right? Sure. Well, and I would say also, if you look at, at Harper, I mean, the $330 million jumps out because it is guaranteed mm-hmm. money. But he makes uh, just over twenty-five million a year. That is what Drew Holiday makes too. I mean, like, so so sports is weird in terms of that too. So like, there's that big that big lump out there. But he's definitely not the highest-paid athlete per year in terms of team sports. Okay, but right. so let me make the like instantly. Someone in Philadelphia did the math and figured out that for every at bat. 
and that's a terrible measure because he walks a lot. But like sure. for every at bat, he actually is going to make more than forty thousand dollars, which supposedly exceeds the median household income sure. for the city of Philadelphia. It's silly, yeah. So it is silly, right? In yeah. that sense, but like, is this can this is this just? If only we had a philosopher here to explain what justice is. I mean, does this make sense? Is this appropriate in any way? Is that even a fair question to ask, or is it just this what the market sustains, and we're mm-hmm. fine with that? Well, I actually think I would go back to your initial question, which is, is the $71 billion just – because if it is, then I would say, sure. I I mean, it's closer, right? It's like he's getting um, what is perceived to be his share of that that market, those types of things. So so I think it's the the, the other question is the bigger one. So Bryce Harper's contract asks a bigger question of society than it asks of Bryce Harper? Sure. Okay. Or the Phillies. Right? I mean, isn't that... Well, I mean, I, I can only assume the owners of the Philadelphia Phillies, I don't know, know who they are, are not doing this out of the goodness of their hearts or because they're particularly foolish business people who just right. lavish contracts. I mean, that this this actually makes a kind of sense given the revenue that he adds to the team. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, I mean, I assume others will follow him to Philadelphia and they want to win a World Series and this is how you do it, right? I mean, I think the larger theme I wanted to point towards that we're going to come back to in a very different way in the second segment is how do we value the labor of athletes right. in this mm-hmm. society? And you know, as absurd as I think we do find $40,000 per at-bat, $330 million for 13 years, equally absurd, <laughs> to give my point of view away, is the, the pittance we pay to college athletes Certainly. to generate another multi-billion dollar industry, right? So we want to talk about that when we get to college basketball. Can I just throw in one other thing to, to shed some light on, on money? Because I did this uh, a couple weeks ago. I think I told Chris more about this. You know how every year the uh, Social Security sends you the email about like where you're at with Social Security? I added up all of the income that I have earned according to Social Security. This is over 26 years. I am not at the annual league minimum for a non-rookie NBA player in 26 years of, of work. And I have a good job. You do. Yeah. yeah. Like, like that's, it was, that was kind of stunning. Cause I didn't, I didn't think in my head what the number was going to be. It was really interesting. It, it is. I mean, like, so theme of this podcast, theme of this course, cause the history class has changed over time. Right. And so a really mm-hmm. significant change over time is there used to be a time when professional athletes actually were in the ballpark of Again, that right. kind of median household income. They were well-paid, they had but not crazy, jobs. Right. I mean, yeah, they were like middle to upper middle class people. And, I mean, they're very odd professionals. And now they really have entered. I'm like, CEO is the appropriate point of comparison. Or like entertainer, mm-hmm. right? Like th- right. those are the people you've got to compare them to. And it does create a difference in the relationship you might have. Um, my kids are listening to an audiobook now, and I forget the title. But it's basically – I think it's kind of a fictionalized memoir of um, someone who grew up uh, in a Jewish neighborhood in Brooklyn. In 1948, Jackie Robinson and his family moved into the neighborhood, right, and just, like, rented the top floor and the next door brownstone or something. And, like, it's idealized, right? But it also like, – there, there was actually a time when, like, a major professional athlete we've placed on baseball's hall, Mount Rushmore would just live next door. Can I ask you a, que- a question about and, – and you might not know the answer to this, but if we were to go back to, say, 1951 when maybe this story – took place how big of an industry was sport was it was it a much smaller right. industry right. no that's an excellent question and i we should get an economist to come on here like i mean i would guess actually i don't have a good guess like i, I know like what the salaries would be because ted williams in the early 50s became the first professional athlete to make again setting aside boxers to make more than a hundred thousand dollars in a contract mm-hmm. and he got some bonuses or something and and so that gives you some sense of the range of what athletes were paid but mm-hmm. in terms of how 
sports compared to the industries I named, but also like to Hollywood in the 50s mm-hmm. or something? It would be a really interesting question we should come back to. So I'll, I'll try to do some research. Right, we'll we table that, that for right now. Week. Okay, can let's I, move on. Sorry. That's go fine. Go ahead. Okay. Go let's move on to uh, some listener mail. So uh, I got an email from, I think, a Bethel alum named Richard McNamara who thought that we might want to talk about an interview in SBNation.com with a sociologist named Ben Carrington who studies racism and anti-racism in sports and specifically in international football. And so most of the conversation SB Nation had with him had to do with the British Premiership. Uh, and I mean, I think we'll come, I, I do want to come back to this. Like, at some point we need to stop focusing so much on the United States, but I, I want to come back to not just football in Britain, but to this theme because there mm-hmm. have been some very famous incidents of racism directed against especially African players right. or players of African descent in Britain. Uh, with interesting penalties. One thing Carrington talks about is, to him, the onus is on players and fans and to think about how they can participate in anti-racism. So maybe we should come back to it. All I wanted to talk about here was the way it was framed by both the interviewer and to some extent by Carrington is that this whole discussion reveals how we tend to think of sports as what they called an innocent space, or I think Carrington called it, we think of sports as the last beacon of meritocracy. You know, it, it, what disturbs us in a sense or and or why we don't want to think about racism is we want to believe that space literally is this level playing field, right? Where once Jackie Robinson and other pioneers have done their work, we have cleared away these artificial barriers. And if you are good at your job, you know, whatever we think about, we're going to pay you for that job. You have an equal chance to rise or fall, whether it's as a player, as a coach, as an official general manager or whatever. We like to think of sports in that way. And it's why we're either disturbed when we see racism or why we would rather not think about maybe how pervasive that still is within sports. And so like, I just found that an interesting notion that we need to continue to play with and we should talk about. We're going to have a whole week on race in the class mm-hmm. once we get to next spring. But I just wanted to throw that out to you guys and see if that made sense to you, if it spurred any further thought here. I guess if, it, if we think of sports as an innocent space – I'm, I'm more inclined to buy the last beacon of meritocracy, but if and I actually reject both of these. But I think the innocent space is, if anything, a useful fiction. I don't think there's any. I, I don't think that even passes sort of a surface sniff test. Sports is not an innocent space. If at, at most, sports is a reflection of society, mm-hmm. uh, and it's the same dramas that are played out in society mm-hmm. are played out on the, on the sporting field. Mm-hmm. And it's not an innocent space, and it's certainly not a, a tabula rasa. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, so is it the last speaking of meritocracy? I don't think so either. Uh, it, um, I don't know why this particular athlete or this particular sport came into my head, but I think of something which is a fairly obscure and also very expensive sport like speed skating. Uh, Anton Apollo Ono was one of the most decorated American speed skaters. If he, was, um, if he grew up in his native Greece as opposed to the United States, how likely is it he would have ever taken up speed skating or had the resources to become a speed skater? I just don't think that there, there is such a notion as this. If once we get athletes to a space, then we can say, well, that space, at least by the rules we define it, allows them to compete on even terms. Mm-hmm. But how athletes migrate to that space is deeply societally fraught. Right. So there are bars to entering the space in some ways, whether it's you know, the popularity of the sport in your native country, but also I think like the cost of participation. Absolutely. In access to coaching. Access to coaching, mm-hmm. right. Um, Gendered norms, societal, eth- ethnic norms and expectations. At the same time, like there is a kind of 
I actually think it was a kind of meritocratic ruthlessness. And I think, again, about my favorite sport, baseball. And I wasn't going, I didn't know we were going to get here, but I think of like the number of kids who enter baseball at whether you want to think about T ball or initial kind of like my kids were kindergartners when they started playing. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's declined. Soccer has taken a lot of that away, but it's still in the millions, right? And then mm-hmm. you kind of reach these like they're, or our kids have to decide between traveling or just recreation league. And then there's going to come high school. And then I mean, and it keeps narrowing, right? And you keep running into these obstacles where you can't participate anymore, mm-hmm. right? And then you get to college, and then you get to minor leagues, and then to pro. I mean, and Bryce Harper, right, is at the very end of that very He's narrow funnel and getting paid $330 million for his efforts. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, like he... I know enough about his family structure. You know he had access to some very specialized coaching and mm-hmm. right, some opportunities. So I, I think it's an interesting insight into the way we like to think about sports and that there is both truth there and it obscures some larger kinds of problems with sports. But this idea of innocence, like, I think we actually might want to talk about this more as we get into the allure of college basketball. Isn't one reason that people fall so deeply in love with college basketball that they think there's something innocent about it? Falsely, I think, sure. and, and like that's again maybe just a useful fiction. But again, don't we want to believe there is a kind of innocent? I mean, isn't that part of the appeal? When we all talked in the second episode of why we love sports, there's the mm-hmm. sense of anything can happen, right? And it's why underdogs are so appealing to us. That that um, so I, I I don't know how much further to go with this, but I just thought it was an interesting idea for us to play around with. Sure, I'm I'm happy to buy that, and I would have to, I would I guess almost there's a spectrum of. Of innocence, a spectrum, a spectrum where we say that certain, if I, if you and I, if the, if we if we go to the the gym and and, do, do, and shoot some hoops, play a little one on one, that's incredibly innocent, right? Yeah. There, there's no way that you and I parlay that into an NBA contract. Yeah. AAU basketball, mostly innocent, but a little bit less so. Mm-hmm. Um, Division three college basketball, still quite innocent. Uh, the chances that anybody there becomes uh, a professional athlete mm-hmm. or the, that is tainted by sort of the things we've been talking about, much smaller, but not insignificant. Mm-hmm. And as you climb that ladder towards um, more and more uh, lucrative financial outcomes and more and more specialized behavior that is required to reach those points, mm-hmm. yeah, I think the, uh, it's increasingly hard to call that innocent. I don't know what the cut line is where I start to say I no longer feel like this is a predominantly innocent endeavor so to say it's right. pretty low it's pretty far down the line so the related question I, I do want to come back to what what makes something pure in that sense I mean I, I would guess like for most of us we don't think of pro sports as innocent really actually no. I mean, and so it's that we've added compensation right and, and market mm-hmm. forces to it but of course those are present in college basketball as well but there, sure. there's something we perceive as being pure that in some way managed to be untainted by those forces or by race and so like that's kind of what I want to drive at eventually mm-hmm. is we continue to think about what is appealing about sports? Why why do people pay to see in order to fund a three hundred and thirty million dollar contract or the multi billion dollar TV right. deals? I think innocence, purity, freedom from taint, relief from things we think are right. only in society and not on the playing field. I think that's maybe at the core. And yeah, I think it's a delusion, mm-hmm. but I at a certain point sports stops being pure when athletes stop just being competitors and start becoming entertainers. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think athletes are part of the fiction, right? I mean, I think part, like, next week we're going to talk about dissent in the NFL and players who take a knee, right? I think Mm -hmm. 
part of what probably bothers some NFL fans about this, like they're they're kind of breaking the fourth wall, right? They're they're breaking, they're shattering this illusion, this pure innocent activity of competition that could have any outcome, and they're reminding us of some other things that are happening we'd rather not pay attention to. I mean, I think at some level that's what bothers NFL fans about. Colin Kaepernick and and, right. and Eric Reed and the others. Well, we'll talk about that next week. Okay, okay. Uh, Sam, we had three to see last week. Were they worth the watch? All right. Uh, first up, I said you should watch the uh, Murray State Austin P game, the last regular season game uh, for John Morant. He put up twenty seven point six rebounds and thirteen assists in yeah, their just average day. For yeah, him. it actually <laughs> kind of is an average day for him uh, in their ninety four to eighty three win over Austin P. So I'm going to call that worth the watch. Um, mm-hmm. We kind of thrust upon Jared the uh, the women's softball opener for Bethel. They took both ends of the doubleheader whoop, whoop. against Stevens Point, uh, 10-2 and 7-6. So That's worth the watch. Yeah, absolutely yeah, worth the watch. Start. And then, Chris, you said we should watch the uh, pro bowling uh, tournament in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Uh, Norm Duke of Claremont, Florida, <laughs> defeated Anthony Simpson in the finals, 212-164. Uh, to 164. Well, That doesn't sound like it was worth the watch. Uh I don't know. But here, here's why I'm going to make the case that it is. Please. Duke, it, it, this is about seeing greatness rewarded. Duke is a two-time PBA Bowler of the Year, and this is his 40th PBA title, which puts him third behind the late Earl Anthony and seven behind Walter Ray Williams Jr. Now, okay, I, since we're talking about finances and sport, I kind of want to ask you guys a question. What is the net worth of Norm Duke, two-time PBA Bowler of the Year, and third on the all-time list for wins. What oh. would you guess the net worth? I would like to fancy myself a fan of bowling, and I have absolutely no idea. So I'll I've, say $3 million. I was, before you even said anything, I had my number pegged at 1.5 mil. It is $4 million. So, Chris, okay. Garrett wins that. Hey, did you know that Walter Ray, Ray Williams was also a championship uh, horseshoe uh, athlete? I, I'm so, willing to believe that. So he's just good at throwing weighted objects. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Okay. But it's, it's a related skill. So it's we're like, going to call that sure. worth the watch to see if okay. do climb that ladder. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of worth the watch, I think the second segment is going to be worth the listen because we're going to have a special guest to help us talk college hoops coming right up. This week in sports history, San Antonio, Texas, March 6, 1982. In the highest scoring game in NBA history, the Spurs outlast the Milwaukee Bucks 171 to 166 in triple overtime. Playing all but seven minutes of the game, George Gervin leads the way for the Spurs with 50 points on 21 of 31 shooting. Piscataway, New Jersey, March 8, 1986. Martina Navratilova wins the U.S. Women's Indoor Tennis Championship in straight sense over Helena Sogova. The $32,000 prize puts her over $10 million in career earnings, the first woman or man in tennis history to reach that number. Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, March 12, 1995. Pecola defeats Indianola in overtime to win Oklahoma's two-way state title, the last game of girls' high school basketball to be contested using the old six-on-six rules that limited half the players to offense and half to defense. Chicago, Illinois, March 6, 1964. Just days after taking the heavyweight title from Sonny Liston, Cassius Clay makes, his pu- makes public his membership in the Nation of Islam. The boxer changes his name to Muhammad Ali, dismissing Cassius Clay as his slave name. But I have people thinking that if I lose or if something bad happens to me, I'll jump out a window. See, my faith is not in worldly things, really. I'm a spiritual man. 
But it's a way of life for you. It's it's money. It's it's an entourage. It's a feeling about yourself. I'm giving all, all of up that. tomorrow. Find a job pumping gas in a gas station if I had to. And me and my wife, my children, get a two-room apartment and one bathroom, one kitchen, and be happy. Really? Yes, ma'am. You've been listening to This Week in Sports History. Basketball is my favorite sport. I like the way they dribble up and down the court. Just like I'm looking on the microphone. So it's Dr. J and Moses Malone. I like slam dunks and taking it to the home. My favorite play is the alley. Ooh, I like the pick and roll. I like the give and go. Because it's basketball. Uh, Mr. Curtis All right, we're back for segment two. It's March, which means it's college basketball season. Uh, this week we have conference tournaments starting in Division One. Next week the big conferences will get to theirs. And then March Madness will begin with the first four on March 19th and 20th. Now, college basketball is not exactly my wheelhouse. I know Sam and Chris are both big fans, but we thought we should bring some extra heft to this discussion. So from the great state of Indiana... We welcome Sarah Shady, philosophy professor at Bethel University, who's going to play a role in our discussion of college basketball. Sarah, uh, hi, Sarah. Hello. I could not be more excited to be here um, as a fan of the good old Crimson and Cream from Bloomington, Indiana, (sighs) near and dear to my heart. I uh, was born and raised on college basketball. So happy to be here today. It was bad enough having a Nebraska fan in last week with Scott Winter. I don't know how we're going to do this this week. So can I, can I just ask you sort of a genealogical question? Yes. So I come from a state with one predominant Division One basketball program. Minnesota is also a state with one predominant. Xavier? <laughs> I'm going to let that fly out. Oscar past. Robertson, come on. Send your letters to... Um, but uh, Indiana has a couple Big Ten programs. So how do people mm. divide between uh, basketball allegiances to Indiana, to Purdue, and even also to Notre Dame? It is dicey. You are basically an IU fan or you're the other. And, um, yeah, there are Purdue fans, but it's, uh, you know, last night I was celebrating the Gopher win. I never root for the Gophers in Big Ten basketball unless they're playing Purdue. So The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Kind of <laughs> right, <thing>. exactly. <laughs> now, Notre Dame can kind of be the, um, the bridge builder between IU and Purdue fans, so you'll have... Uh, people rooting for Notre Dame. <laughs> I thought you were saying they both hate Notre Dame. Well, <laughs> it, it depends. It depends who they're playing, but they're not in the Big Ten, so they're they're neutral. Okay, so what are we going to do? Well, we wanted to get into the history of college basketball a little bit and then talk about some issues in current uh, college basketball. And so our way of doing this, you've no doubt noticed by now, is to try to come up with a Mount Rushmore of mm-hmm. the sport. We've done this for the NFL. We did this for baseball. Now it's college basketball's turn. So we're going to do a kind of draft. Sam, do you want to explain how this is going to work? Yeah, we're going to do a snake draft between uh, the, the three hosts, Chris, Chris, and I. And we're going to do this four rounds. So we're each going to end up with four heads on Mount Rushmore. But then we brought Sarah Shady in as our final arbiter of sorts. Kind of our semi-final arbiter, That's right. as you might call um, it. Penultimate arbiter? There you, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> what she's going to do is uh, she's going to take our list of 12, and she's going to automatically just lop off four people she doesn't want on that list. And then she gets a special power, which is she can take off a fifth person 
person and add someone of her choosing. And I think we all kind of know who that's going to be. I think we do. So we won't name that person. Uh, he who shall not be named. Right. It's Voldemort. Not Voldemort. <laughs> and then we'll turn this over to our listeners as usual. We'll put a poll up at our Facebook page for Live from AC Second and on our show page at my blog, com. So uh, we should make clear this is both men's and women's yes. college basketball. Right. Uh, Sam, you look like you're ready to go. Do you want to start us? Uh, let's Chris start with Moore? Chris Moore. Let's start okay. with Chris Wait, I get the number one pick? Yeah. Wow. Oh, I, can't, I, I can't waste this. I can't waste this. Um, I'm gonna, I, I, this, is a, this is a very safe pick. I feel very good about this. I feel like it's going to be a high-value return for me. Um, I'm taking John Wooden. Uh, John Wooden won 11 championships in 12 years with UCLA. He is uh, the gold standard in college men's basketball. Uh, and produced a number of iconic players who would play at the professional level as well. And I think the pick is unimpeachable. But I'll turn it over to you guys. Can we all just agree on John? I mean, because I think he's the top of all of our he was, lists, Yeah, right? he was high on my board. Yes. I mean, what I would add to that is, well, first of all, it's painful as a Gophers fan because he was supposed to come to the University of Minnesota, but there was snow or something, and he made a promise to UCLA. But before that, you might not know, he, of course, is from Indiana, coached Indiana State and helped to integrate basketball. Um, at the time, the tournament they were playing in didn't allow black players. Uh, Wooden had uh, a player from Chicago, and so he refused to play in the tournament. Later did play in one, and the player went on to the pros. Um, but yeah, this seems like the safest of all the picks right. we make. Yeah. I'm in. <coughs> all right. John Wooden will stay. Okay. That's right, just Chris. a preview. Oh, I, like, I like that you're throwing this in. All right, Okay. Um, I'm going to go with a coach then, too, and I'm going to talk about Pat Summit. So, longtime coach, well over 30 seasons before her death at University of Tennessee for, I think, what they call the lady volunteers throughout most of her time. I don't know if they still do. They still do. do, yes. Okay. So, at the time of her death, Pat Summit was the winningest coach in uh, college basketball with 1,098 wins. I think Mike Krzyzewski has since overtaken that. She won about 85% of her games. Uh, in 1997-98, I believe, the team went undefeated. Uh, first time that happened. She had no losing seasons in her 38 years of coaching. Also coached a gold medal team, I think, in 1984 in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also an author, very influential. I assume if you looked at her coaching tree, you'd see it's pretty extensive, I, I think, in women's basketball. But generally in college basketball, she's kind of like 1B to John Wooden. Mm-hmm. Well, I have two picks here, um, and I'm going to go with two players. And remember, Mount Rushmore is not necessarily players you like, but players who are important. Um, so I'm going to take one player who went on to great success in the NBA, and that is Bill Russell. I, I'm, I'm picking him because, uh, for one part, in the the early 19, or the mid-1950s, when he's looking for a college to go to, uh, as a black player, there's very few people who will recruit him. He ends up at the University of San Francisco, where he becomes uh, the centerpiece of the first really kind of superstar team. Two NBA Hall of Famers on it, both Bill Russell and Casey Jones. In his last two years, they go 57-1 and and win back-to-back national titles, including the first-ever undefeated team. Um, so I'm going to take Bill Russell. And then I'm also going to take Christian Leitner. Um, instead of picking, instead of picking um, uh, Mike Krzyzewski, I'm picking Leitner because if you think about Really, the last probably 20, 25 years, Duke is this dominant, uh, this dominant thing you have to reckon with in college basketball. And Duke became that with those four-year uh, Leitner years. He's also kind of the end of the four-year uh, NCAA star. Uh, there was that documentary, uh, uh, the 30 for 30, I Hate Christian Leitner, which mm-hmm. sort of sum, sums up a lot of my feelings about him. <laughs> um, but, Wolves, man. Yeah, but, and, and he's also representative of somebody who was, was an undeniably 
uh, a superstar player in college and was not a, a great NBA player. I think he made an all-star team, but but was did not have any kind of good NBA career. So I'm going to put Leitner and Bill Russell on my list. Okay. okay, is it back to me then? Yep. All right. Well, I think to clear the palette after that choice. Yes, please. <laughs> and I'm Dean Smith, longtime coach yeah, of the University of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, he does not have the win totals, the championships of certainly Wooden or Summit or even, unfortunately, Mike Krzyzewski. But I would argue that Dean Smith is important because to the degree – I'm willing to concede there is something special and pure about college basketball. I think Dean Smith is probably the best um, emblem of that. He inherited a program that was scandalized. That's really just a troll, Sarah. I'm sorry. (laughs) He inherited a program that was scandalized, and after he left, the program again was scandalized by academic cheating. Um, I was reading an article in the New York Times following up on the scandal at uh, University of North Carolina, and it argued that actually what really makes it hard is that Dean Smith is still untarnished. There's this shadow cast by someone who really did take seriously the student-athlete idea. Like, they interviewed anthropology and history professors who talked about how Smith had kind of mentored his athletes into their programs, into graduate school, Um, but also because he's an interesting example of um, a religiously devout political progressive in college basketball, of which there are not a lot. He's a devout Baptist, um, but also maybe the leading Democrat in the state of North Carolina, helped integrate not just the university, but also Chapel Hill itself, um, and later became an advocate for the abolition of the death penalty, spoke about civil rights, gay rights. Um, I mean, I think in many ways is a very admirable figure and also is a great basketball coach. So that was my long case for Dean Smith. Dr. Moore, you get uh, two picks here. All right, feel good about this. Um, I've, got, uh, I've got two picks, and I'm picking them for not only who they were, but also where they existed in the timeline of college basketball. So I'm leaving, as, I'm leaving some really good picks on the table here with this, but i I, I got to balance my, my overall number one, so I can't take, I'm not going to take another coach yet. And so I'm going to take a player in Magic Johnson. And my rationale for Magic Johnson is not only did he um, lead Michigan State to an NCAA championship, but also he really lived around the time that uh, college basketball, and especially March Madness, was really becoming a cultural phenomenon. Uh, this is also the rise of the mass media market. This is the rise of, of e- at the, the very beginning of ESPN. So I think he signals sort of the beginning of literally showtime, and not just for the Lakers, but for college basketball as well. My second pick, likewise, um, a, um, a snapshot in time is Diana Taurasi. Uh, Diana Taurasi may be one of the top five uh, greatest women's basketball players ever and was on some of those phenomenal undefeated UConn teams, which uh, really signaled sort of the, that era of dominance in women's college basketball. I'm not really sure what that says about women's college basketball, but it says, but, but it's, it's a historical epoch that we should pay attention to. Okay, uh, for my next pick, I'm taking inspiration from a writer we all like, Chuck Klosterman, who did a Grantland piece in the greatest college basketball players of all time. And one of his stipulations was they should be greater as a college player than a pro. And I'm mm. tempted to go with his number one, but I'll save that for someone else. I'll go with Pete Maravich yeah, instead, good. who actually did have a decent pro career, but is one of the rare great basketball players whose college career overshadows. Pete Maravich averaged, Sam, I'm going to look to you to 42? 44 points a game. In, in his best year. I think he averaged 42 over Overall. the course of three okay. years. Yeah. To average over 40 in a time where there's no... I feel no like we're quibbling over that $5 million okay. for Bryce Harper. <laughs> <laughs> in a time when, A, there was no three-point line. So, I mean, imagine uh, contemporary listeners, Steph Curry, <laughs> but not having the three-point bonus, right? 
no shot mm-hmm. clock, so teams would stall, as they did to a lot of the great players on our list, and to still do that. But also just, like, because he was so distinctive, right? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. you can, even if you know very little about this, you can imagine Pistol Pete Maravich. Um, and that's kind of a college sort of archetype, right? You know, this, like, unlikely great player kind of wills his team to victory, even if he's not surrounded by the best surrounding cast. Like, uh, I'm going to put Pete Maravich on there. All right. For my two picks, I'm going to go with uh, – for my next pick, I'm going to go with a, both a player and a coach. Um, I'm picking Don Staley, who was a two-time player of the year at Virginia, then went on to uh, coach a national championship team at, Sarah, South Carolina. Um, so I so I think she I mean she's rep- represents love. represents um, uh, she's sort of my pick to represent women's college basketball. I really like the um, the Pat Summit pick, and I really like Diana Taurasi as well. But I'm going to pick Sue Bird because or not Sue Bird, um, Dawn Staley because she crosses both of those. Um, and then the, my last one is going to be a little trolley, but I think it's an important thing um, for me. And again, doesn't need to be people you love. For me, what college basketball sounds like as a child of the 1990s is Dick Vitale. Like, mm. it, you knew it was a big game in the 90s. You knew it was a Duke Carolina game on ESPN on a Tuesday night, and you had to watch it because Dick Vitale. Now, he can be annoying. He can do <laughs> DiGiorno commercials. But, like, but that is what col- – more so than the folks who, who – like Billy Packer and the folks you think of with the NCAA tournament. For me, college basketball is a Tuesday night in the winter, and it's Dick Vitale on ESPN. Okay, Truth. I. <laughs> this is really hard because if I say, I'm worried that one. Okay, I'm going to trust that Chris will pick me up here and not say the one I really want to talk about. But I'll, I'll talk about. <laughs> wow, wow. No, I want to talk about this player, but I, I think as great as Tarasi, to be, to be and clear, Staley this is your are, last pick, right? No, yeah, All this right. is what makes it hard. I'm going to go a little bit deeper into women's basketball history and, and say Nancy Lieberman has mm. got to be on this list. Like, I don't. This is a time before women's. So in the wake of Title IX. Um, so, for example, Nancy Lieberman is a young 18-year-old. It became the youngest Olympic medalist in Olympic basketball history at Montreal and then played at Old Dominion University in Virginia. Uh, she won two championships plus the women's NIT. This is before women uh, had an NCAA tournament. Uh, and then went on to play pro basketball, has also been a coach. Um, I mean, she is the she's the trailblazer, right, for Tarasi, for Staley, for Sue Bird, for Rebecca Lobo, for mm-hmm. all the players we've talked about before on the show. So I, I want to put her up there as really breaking that door open and helping to establish women's basketball. So with my no pressure, with my last pick here, <laughs> with my last pick here, I could pick Jerry Lucas. <laughs> What? <laughs> no, he said he could. <laughs> could. Um, but I could. Uh, Does it rhyme with Munderberg? <laughs> <laughs> I could take Lawrence Funderburk. I could take Bad Mata, little Jimmy Jackson. Um, okay, I got my Buckeyes out of the way here. Yep. As much as it pains me to t- to, to to turn towards UCLA twice, you go. you've got to put Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on the list, and I'm so thrilled that I can take him with my fourth pick. I almost took it with my first pick. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was a three-time most outstanding player in the tournament and um, was a centerpiece of the middle of those 10 uh, or 11 championships in 12 years. <laughs> and the only reason he was only a three-time most outstanding player is you could only play three years. Yeah. You couldn't play as a freshman. Or, or he would have been a four-time. Yeah. 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 And I... In, in as much as he had a greater NBA career than he had a college career, so that defeats the Klosterman rule. 
he was absolutely dominant at the college level as well. Well, and he's so dominant, Klosterman still put him number one and admitted yeah. you had to see the rule. He also is a great high school basketball player, which we haven't talked about, but he won for, was it Power? He won the like New York City Catholic Championship yeah. multiple times, national championship. Twice. And also that makes him a national recruit, too. Right. I mean, he went from New York to, to L.A., um, you know, and, and where – I think even in the 60s, there was a little more regional with some of that. Stuff. Yeah, no, like I was, I did, I don't like it. I was thinking of Adolf Rupp a little bit. Like mm-hmm. Rupp was so this great was coach, but he almost entirely recruited regionally. I mean, that was kind of the last example of Kentucky and surrounding, and Lou L. Cinder turned Kareem Abdul Jabbar as the first kind of cross country recruit. We're well, not the first, but the first one of the major one of the first ones. Major yeah. ones. Okay, so Sarah, John Wooden, Pat Summit. Bill Russell, Christian Leitner, Dean Smith, Magic Johnson, Diana Trazzi, Pete Maravich, Don Staley, Dick Vitale, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You get to strike four and maybe add one. Yeah, so I got to start off with I'm a little bit surprised at the list of 12. I feel like you were all going for um, different sorts of picks, like not our standard list. And so hmm. uh, I, I, I'm i finding it a little bit harder to take people off the list because like, I can't just rip Patino off for being dirty or Krzyzewski <laughs> off for being boring. Um, <laughs> okay, so here we go. Um, I'm gonna, my first elimination is Christian Leitner. I also, I actually <laughs> held back laughs. With as, extreme prejudice. As, as <laughs> Sam was saying that, extreme prejudice when we're looking at Duke teams of the 90s versus <laughs> Indiana teams of the 90s. Um, you know, interesting guy to make documentaries about. He doesn't belong on Mount Rushmore. Uh, if anything, Shashevsky would, but we would come back to that. Um, okay, <laughs> next off the list is Don Staley. I mm. like having women on Mount Rushmore and representing mm. that as we're thinking about who really belongs there. I'm going to actually go with Pat Summit and Diana Taurasi uh, more for the ways in which they popularized and lifted the status of women's college basketball. Oh, and I, I forgot to mention Nancy Lieberman. Was on the right. You're taking her off as I'm well. I'm taking her off the list yeah. as well. So that gives me one more uh, person to pull. Um, I'm going to keep Dick Vitale on the mountain because my, my memories of 90s college basketball, I'm right there with Sam and so many mm-hmm. of the nicknames we use for people in our basketball language. We can't we can't. It's now a much louder mountain. Him <laughs> off. Exactly. It's a much louder <laughs> mountain. Um, I'm also going to leave both John Wooden and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar because they need to stand next to each other mm. on the mountain. And there's a beautiful mm. book out in the last year that... Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has about John Wooden. All right, my last person off the mountain is Bill Russell. Great oh. player, but I think that he, um, I think that he doesn't need to be there. Now, I do want to make space for one more person, <laughs> and uh, in order to make that space, I'm also pulling Dean Smith <gasps> off the mountain. <laughs> Dean oh. Smith, great person, great coach, but he's just not the top of the top of the top. And for the top of the top of the top, we need none other than one of his competitors, Robert Montgomery Knight, a.k.a. Bobby Knight, who I shall heretofore refer to throughout my comments as the general. No, I'm gonna hop in my time machine, <laughs> go back to Monday morning, and uninvite Sarah Shady for this segment. 
I mean, oh, where do we even begin? Goodness. Fashion trends in college basketball. You couldn't live in Indiana in the 80s and 90s and not own a red sweater vest or red V-neck sweater that you would pull up over your tummy to show your white shirt underneath. Admittedly, that was games. one of our top criteria for mm-hmm. this mountain. So that's fair. Um, okay. <laughs> Knight himself played on an NBA championship NCAA, team. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm sorry? NBA or NCAA? Oh, NCAA. NCAA. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that would be even more exciting. <laughs> now, we are left without anyone from Duke on the mountain. That's making me really happy. Okay, it's um, fine. You were here. <laughs> <laughs> but I got to say, I was surprised nobody nominated Mike Krzyzewski, and my argument for taking him off was you get no Mike Krzyzewski without Bobby Knight. I was going to say, he's in the yeah. coaching tree. Yeah. 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 He played for him at West Point. Uh why do we call Knight the general? He was known for his disciplined teams, his disciplined uh, coaching staffs, his discipline. And his self-discipline is legendary. And it's um, a model of moderation, <laughs> self-control. Can you hear eye rolls on a podcast? <laughs> there are eyebrows <laughs> lifting on every side of me. Completely clean program. Never one infraction raised against them. He had an 80% graduation rate of his players. The NCAA average is 42%. I think Dean Smith was 94%, but, you know, whatever. That's, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, three NCAA championship titles at Indiana. He still is number third in all-time winning record as a coach, and no scandals ever. But then the, the last part of this that, that those not from Indiana may never understand is he now lives with mythological status. Like, he's a demigod of basketball. The gods of basketball. Demigod or demigod? I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's correct. <laughs> demigod. The gods of basketball had a child, and it is Robert Montgomery Knight. Oh, Growing up as a kid in Indiana, my dad, my uncles, everyone still looks to him as what is wrong. His absence is what is wrong with Indiana basketball. Still talking about a recent loss to Purdue. My dad had to bring up the fact that if Bobby Knight was still the coach, the Indiana players would shoot uh, free throw straight for two days without meals until they learned to get their percentages up. And and that's true. Well, Sarah, you are right that there is something wrong with Indiana basketball. Sam, any last thoughts? <laughs> this is why we should outlaw the filibuster. <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> so that I can keep going. But okay. okay, well, I think we've heard our case. We have John Wooden, Pat Summit. Magic Johnson, Diana Trossi, Pete Maravich, Dick Vitale, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You can say Bobby it. Knight. Yeah, there the we list. go. So we'll put this out there for you all to vote on. Now, before we go, there, there's one other player that I know was, I think I saw on Chris's list. I don't know if he was on Sam's. He was my next pick that I wanted to talk about. Uh, the 1995 College Basketball Player of the Year for Men, a national championship with, with UCLA, but more famous for his... I guess legal activities mm-hmm. at O'Bannon. Yep. Uh, I just want to talk a little bit about the O'Bannon versus NCAA case. So Ed O'Bannon was a really good college basketball player, mm-hmm. I think number nine pick, not a great pro, um, but sued the NCAA um, essentially for using his and other as a class action suit. That the NCAA drives considerable income. I think over eighty or ninety percent of their income comes from. March Madness, right, mm-hmm. and other ancillary things like video games was a big part of this, mm-hmm. um, without being compensated, right? O'Bannon got a scholarship of some sort, but otherwise was not paid for his labor. His likeness was used, and mm-hmm. the district court judge up- upheld this, 
ruled that it was an antitrust violation, created a kind of remedy about uh, um, full scholarships, multi-year scholarships, but also like I think $5,000 a year, kind of in an escrow for players. That part of it was struck down by an appeal, but the larger ruling held the Supreme Court declined to hear an appeal by either side. And so we're kind of in this fuzzy aftermath of what it means. Like one thing that's happened is there are many more multi-year scholarships instead of you know one year and then if you get injured, you're done. Um, but we still have, I mean, as we talked about with Zion Williams' injury last week, you've got these fabulously talented players who generate all sorts of revenue for their coaches, for their institutions, for the NCAA, um, are risking their pro careers playing college basketball, and yet they are scholarship student athletes, right? And so mm-hmm. in that sense, this seems like a still a brewing, percolating debate, but Ed and seems to stand in for that. So we've, we've kind of hinted at this several times yep. in our past five or six episodes. It felt like we should come at it a little bit more directly. Um, I mean, the NCAA's case was that there is a tradition of what they call amateurism that would be irrevocably um, slighted if you start paying players even relatively modest amounts. What, what do we think about that argument? And this gets back at the purity idea of college basketball. I guess I think about it from this perspective. Um, I was a, I was, I've never been an athlete other than at the high school level. Mm-hmm. But I, in, in grad school, um, I received a stipend. I was paid by the university for, in some cases, research, and in other cases, for, for teaching. Mm-hmm. And grads, uh, um, grad student stipends, at least at my institution, did, were not uniform across the university. They varied by department, and they varied by division. And so I was a grad student in political science. I made a lot more than grad students in philosophy. Mm. Sorry, Sarah. No surprise uh, there. But I made a <laughs> lot less than grad students in chemical engineering. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't see why we shouldn't include uh, college basketball players, college football players, and other college athletes in this same kind of decision-making process. Certainly, uh, a member of the swimming and diving team does not generate as much revenue for the university as a member of the basketball team. But as a consequence, members of the basketball team should be compensated at least something approaching fairly as employees of the institution. Like those, like those students, I also received uh, waivers for my graduate education. They should receive waivers for their undergraduate education mm-hmm. and some kind of compensation on behalf of the institution. Yeah, I, it actually, I thought, I had a similar kind of thought because in grad school when I was there, there was an effort to unionize Yale's grad students. And I remember being really torn because the argument that ultimately doomed that effort was similar to the, another argument the NCAA has made, which it would change fundamentally the relationship between the students and people who are meant to be not just you know supervisors, managers, but mentors, right? Whether it's grad school professors, in my case, coaches for the athletes we're talking about. But at the same time, uh, this is about labor, right? And, mm-hmm. and shouldn't there be the right to collectively bargain? In our case, it had a lot to do with health insurance for grad school families was the big issue. Because we were paid a stipend, and like as a single 21-year-old, I could scrape by a living on it, but mm-hmm. it wasn't a living wage. And if I had had a family, I really would have struggled, and there was no health insurance available. But the university's argument is you were students, you were not workers. And this is something we've kind of inherited from the history of higher education, that there's a difference between those two things. Even though I think we see all the time our students are working, right? A Absolutely. lot of our students work 20 to 40 or more hours. And we're going to talk to a couple of student athletes at the end of the month. And I'll be curious to know how many hours they spend on their sport. And that's not an optional. That's not a choice they can make. That's that's part of their commitment. And they don't right. even get scholarships where, where we are. Right. So I, I did think about 
it's kind of a labor history question in many ways mm-hmm. as well. Um, and then kind of the fairness question we're getting at. Um, the other thing I thought about is like this notion of amateurism, uh, not surprisingly, has a history. Next week we're going to talk to a sports historian named Paul Putz. And Paul wrote or did an interview a little bit about this that I'm leaning on. Amateurism is really a turn of the 20th century concept. It shows up in the Olympics, which we should come back to, but also in college sports. And it has to do with some of the debates about how dangerous college football was. But also, like, there was this phenomenon of people who would go to college and then kind of jump from college to college and take payments under the table. And so as a way to kind of clean up college sports, they stuck to this amateur ideal. But also it was very much an upper class ideal. There was also this concern about the upper classes in an industrial age were being perceived as weak and effeminate. And so this is tied to muscular Christianity. Mm-hmm. And so at a time when only 5% of the population goes to college, even among men, I mean, it is very much still a bastion of the upper and upper middle classes. It's not open to the working classes. And so it's a these are leisured gentry, right, who go off, who, you know, they spend four years in college. They don't have to worry about how much it costs. They play sports as a gentleman's kind of activity, and then they go on to get their law firm job in, in New York or Boston, right. right? Also, there was really no pro sports option at that time. I mean, like, there were very few – baseball is the one big professional sport. Very few baseball players at the time actually went to college. You know, Lou Gehrig is actually kind of a trailblazer because he goes to Columbia for a couple of years. And so there, there's no sense of, well, you go play college sports, and that's preparation for your actual professional career. That doesn't exist right. at the time. So we actually, in many ways, have this really anachronistic sort of ideal that's from a particular historical context – and we've held on to it as if it's this kind of pristine thing that is worth defending at any cost, and it overrides all other considerations, including fairness, you know, what what antitrust law and what labor laws should look like. So, sorry, I didn't mean to go on so long. It's okay. Sam, I think in many ways you're our biggest college basketball fan. One thing Klosterman talks about is that college basketball is about emotional attachment much more than statistics, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, as we even thought about our list, I wondered if that occurred to you, but... I mean, is that part of the emotional appeal of college basketball, this kind of sense of these are students playing for the university and you have an attachment to the university? Would that be destroyed by I don't games? think so because because for me the thing that makes college college is sort of the uh, – almost like the, the ephemeral fleeting nature of this. It's what made the Mount Rushmore hard was because if mm. you put a player on there, it's why like I would – when I thought about Leitner over Shashevsky, like the problem is Leitner was there for four years. Shashevsky's been there for thirty years, so it's like, so that's. But so it's that to me, that's sort of what I love about it. It's this, and as a high schooler, these are these were people who were just a year or two older than you, mm-hmm. or, you know, like or these are kids who are just coming out of high school. They're going on to something. This will not be the apex for some of the best of these players, but you get to see this this one more glimpse of them, or it gets to introduce you to these players who right. were regional before then and now they're national. Right. Actually, can I latch onto that last point? I think the regional part of this is, ex- is incredibly important. Um, for our professional sports leagues in the United States, we have 30 NFL teams, 30 NBA teams, roughly speaking, right? Mm-hmm. And as a consequence, like you have to, a large part of the country is fairly geographically removed from uh, their, mm-hmm. you know, from their team. And, um, for uh, for other kinds for for colleges, there's a lot more of them, and they're a lot closer to a lot of people. And I think even if the players are changing, if the coaches are changing, schools don't move, and so teams don't relocate. 
I think there's something very regional about our affiliation to college sports. Okay. They're going to have to make that the last word because we're running out of time. Uh, Sarah, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Um, everyone, vote for everyone but Bob Knight. We'll tell That's you right. how. <laughs> yeah, we'll be right back to wrap up. Mulberry here for the Live from AC Second Network. If you're enjoying this show, you should check out the other podcasts on the network. Tweet Victory, our first micropod. Twitter can be a toxic place, but not when you're following the Twitterverse's newest, funniest feed, at Annie underscore Berglund, and Twitter's silentist account, at CWC Radio. We dive into the best of our tweets five minutes at a time. Election Shock Therapy, three Bethel political scientists and me, except for when I have a meeting, come together to break down what's happening in the political world. Subscribe to the Live from AC Second podcast network on your favorite app. Leave us a five-star review and jump into the conversation by emailing us at livefromacsecond at gmail.com or join our Facebook group. All right, we're almost out of time, but we have to get to three to see. Sam, kick us off. This weekend in Gainesville, Florida, the number three Florida Gators hosts the number seven Tennessee Lady Volunteers in a three-day, three-game series. This series will feature four of the top 25 players in the country, including pitcher Kelly Barnhill, who is the current NCAA career leader in both ERA and strikeouts per seven innings. The softball, right? Yes. Okay. I was thinking Pat Summit. I was thinking basketball. Three-game series. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. If you think high school football is big in Texas or basketball rules in Sarah's home state, you need to come to downtown St. Paul this weekend for the Minnesota State High School League Boys Hockey Tournament. Upwards of 130,000 people will be at the Excel Energy Center to watch teams from the Twin Cities to the Iron Range contest the most well-attended high school sports tournament in America. Chris. And Tiger Woods has won the Arnold Palmer Invitational in Bay Hill in Orlando, Florida. In fact, he's won it eight times. But eight, after years of dealing with injuries and personal struggles, it appears that Woods is rounding into the best form of his years of dominance. A big test of his recovery will be this year's Arnold Palmer, which is a little less than a month before the first major tournament of the year, the Masters. Incidentally, Rory McIlroy, who won the tournament last year, is also projected to compete. All right, thanks, Chris. One more thing to mention, because we talked so much college hoops, we thought it would be fun if we did a 252 March Madness bracket, or maybe brackets, men and women. So, again, we're still a couple weeks away from this, but be listening next week and then on our Facebook page is probably where we'll share it. But if you'd like to take part, uh, I know the three of us will do it. We'll try to get some of our live Macy Second podcast uh, cohort to join us in a friendly, uh, nothing being wagered, Bethical kind of competition. 
Can we can we can we drum up some kind of swag for somebody who if they win it? Uh, we'll see if Sam can effort that. All right. Okay. So that's the two five two for this week. Please do vote on our Mount Rushmore of college basketball. Let you know what. Let us know what you think about our discussion of amateurism, Bryce Harper, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot lots that we got to this week, Chris. Wrap us up. On behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, thanks for listening. This is the 252. You can always get a hold of us online. Uh, visit our uh, Podbean page for contact information. And go Royals. Go Royals.